Welcome to the New Beginning Fellowship Church Sermon Podcast. We are glad you are listening to the teaching of the Word of the Lord. We pray that this message encourages you and builds your faith. We also pray that this message is only supplemental to your spiritual growth instead of being a replacement for daily personal Bible study, the pastor you should be submitted to, or the church God would have you to be an active member of. If you live within driving distance of Brobridge, Louisiana, we hope that you would come to visit us during one of our services on Sunday morning or Wednesday night. Service times, ministry information, and giving options are all located on our website at newbeginningfc.com or on our Facebook page at New Beginning Fellowship Church. May the Lord bless you and keep you and make His face to shine upon you. I want to talk to you tonight about a voice of life or a voice of death and how important this is for our culture today when words are multiplied like never before, right? Words are multiplied in our day like never before. More people have more words and can multiply their words and the reach of their words than any time in human history ever, right? Ever. Uh, And so it used to, there was a very small portion of society that had the ability to take their ideas and publish them in a way that other people could hear, other people could digest and take in. But we live in a day and an age where words are multiplied, right? And Proverbs says, where there is a multitude of words, right? So if there's words that are multiplied, it started with this many and it increased and it's multiplied and there's a lot of them. Wherever there is a multitude of words, there is no shortage of sin, right? So the point is that inherently, even within the best of us, our speech contains sin, even if we don't realize it, right? This is why it says things like you will be judged for every idle word spoken out of your mouth. Words that are not really intentional, words that you didn't give a lot of thought to, words that you just sort of muttered here or there or said without great care, and you didn't realize that they were weighty words. And Jesus says you will be judged even for those words, And so if even in our small speech, little bit of speech, there is sin, then what happens when we multiply it, right? So if I say to you, hey, I've got a bag of rice here and just taking a random guess, now Cajuns, you can probably make a better guess than I can about how much rice is in a a bag of one pound rice, right? Maybe you've seen it more than I have making gumbo and jambalaya, but right, say it's a thousand uh, grains of rice, right? And how many of you have bought that cheap rice? Because even when you got to the rice, you were like, I'm just in a stage of life where we buying the cheap rice, right? And sometimes it had that little extra husk or kernel on it where, uh, you know, you just had to pick it out and go, you know, that's not very good rice, right? Say that's one out of a hundred, right? You got one out of a hundred, the more that you get, the more of those that you'll have, right? So if you put a hundred grains of rice in, and it's one out of a hundred, well, you got one grain of rice that isn't uh, that great. But then if you do a thousand, then you've, you've got ten. And then ten thousand, 
uh, you've got a hundred, right? So just inherent within it. But if that's true of just something that maybe is not the best brand or quality, what about if it's 10% or 20% or 30%? Then the more you multiply that, the more imperfect things come along with it. And if that's the case, the more that we multiply our words, inherently the more we will sin with our words. This is the reason why James says not many people should be teachers, right? He says because teachers will be judged more strictly for what they say, and the very job of being a teacher is to have to say more than other people say. And so he's saying this is an awful burden to have, and so everyone shouldn't strive for that burden in a haphazard way, right? You shouldn't do it nonchalantly just because uh, you want to, right? I feel this uh, so much as a pastor, right? I mean, just two weeks ago, uh, I almost thought, man, do I need to address this? I, I said something that I didn't really just give a lot of thought to when I was preaching. And I said, you know, Jeremiah, I was talking about how hard his message was and his ministry was. And I said, um, you know, his message was so weighty compared to him. Elijah was a playboy. And what I meant was somebody who's lighthearted and they're living, a, you know, just kind of a lighthearted, enjoyable life. And then I thought as soon as I said it, I was like, I don't think that's the first most distinctive part of being a playboy. And I, I looked it up and sure enough, the most defining character of that. And I was like, oh, Lord, I might need to send an email to the church and be like, I wasn't saying Elijah was that, you know. Um, so, you know, just realizing you multiply words and the chances that you're going to say something harmful increases, right? And so let's get into our text tonight that deals with a voice of life or a voice of death. Amen. Proverbs chapter 18, verse 20 and 21 says this. It says, from the fruit of a man's mouth, his stomach is satisfied. He is satisfied by the yield of his lips. Death and life are in the power of the tongue. And those who love it will eat its fruits. Amen. Let's look at that last verse one more time. Verse 21, it says, Death and life are in the power of the tongue, and those who love it will eat its fruits. I want to talk to you tonight about a voice of life or a voice of death. Amen. We pray. Lord, we ask you that you would give us wisdom and insight, that you would give us humility and respect for your word, and that you would teach us, Lord, to understand your ways And Lord, to see the weight, the power, the authority that is in our words and help us to allow the Holy Spirit to have reign over our mouths and over our words. And it might be to the praise of your glory and your grace. In Jesus' name, amen. Our words. He says, the fruit of a man's mouth or by the fruit of a man's mouth, his stomach is filled, right? So the obvious context of Proverbs is wisdom, right? It's the wise sayings. And in the context here, most likely what he's talking about is in relationships and in business, the things that a man says will either give him success or give him failure, 
right? And so in the context of uh, the agricultural society that he's speaking of, he says, by the fruit of a man's mouth, his stomach is satisfied. A man that knows how to make wise business deals, a man that knows how to have good relationships, a man that doesn't lie to people in a way that they don't trust him, a man that is trustworthy and that people desire to do business with, as he does these fruitful, wise things, his stomach is satisfied. He is satisfied by the yield of his lips. In other words, the condition and state of his life is often dictated and controlled by the way that he speaks to people, right? And then he says, death and life are in the power of the tongue. We got some feedback going on right here? Yeah, it's all right. Um, Death and life are in the power of the tongue, and those who love it will eat its fruits. What does it mean that death and life are in the power of the tongue? And what does it mean that those who love it will eat its fruit? The consistent message of Scripture is that the words we use are either encouraging or discouraging, either enlightening or deceiving, either hurting or healing, either confusing or clarifying, either creating relationships or breaking them. Think about the power of the words that you have over your children, over your spouse. Think about the power of your words over your work relationships, right? This is the point. Over and over again, uh, it says things like this. Our speech destroys or nourishes the mind and attitude of those around us. It says in Proverbs 12, 18 through 19, there is one who speaks like the piercing of a sword, right? There is one who speaks like the piercings of a sword, but the tongue of the wise promotes health, right? In other words, there are people who can cut you with their words. They can wound you with their words. They can beat you over the head with their words. There are people who, this is why we talk about the difference between physical abuse and emotional abuse, right? Because there are people who live in homes and families or relationships where they are physically abused by people, and that's awful. But there are people who have never lifted a finger against another person because they don't have to. That is not the way that they are abusive. They understand the way that people think, the way that people feel, and they can use their words to wound a person just as deeply as if they stabbed them with a knife or hit them in the head with a bat, right? They can destroy the mind and the attitude of that person. Think about the way that we speak to our children. Think about the way that we speak to each other as a spouse. I know that you've probably heard this before, but it is a powerful illustration. Did you know that they have tested uh, this idea of our tone and the way that we speak, even with plants, that they have taken audio and put a speaker in a room with plants and spoke harsh, cruel, mean tones uh, with plants and watched them grow healthier and better and then put those same speakers into a room with plants and had them speaking harsh, cruel, angry tones uh, and it actually made those plants not grow as well, right? That it made them actually shrivel up and die because there's a harshness 
there. There's an abuse there, right? There's a reason why we speak the way that we speak. Just think about the biological ingraining that you have in your mind to react to certain things, right? You can never have seen a dog or a wolf in your life. And you hear that deep-seated growl, right? And something in your biology knows, I don't think that's a happy sound, right? I don't think that's a good thing, right? That is a threatening tone, right? That is something letting me know that I am not safe, right? That's why animals do this, right? (laughs) Don't exaggerate, all right? So... (laughs) Oh, have mercy. So, hey, you teach things you need to learn, right? <laughs> um, the, the reason why, I, you ever watch Animal Planet? And I remember watching these lions or bear roar before they would attack something. And I thought, well, why would they do that? Why would they let that prey, that prey know that they're there before they attack it, right? And the reason is because they're not letting the thing know that they're there. By using that roar, they are causing that thing to have fight or flight, right? And it causes them to freeze so much that they can't react, that even when they see the lion coming, they are frozen and so fearful that they can't move, right? They're aware my voice and the way that I treat this thing has control over its mind and its nervous system, right? And so the way that we speak to one another, the way that we treat one another can harm or help. It can heal or damage. It can curse or bless, right? That's what James says. It talks about those who with the same mouth bless God and curse their brother, right? And so it says that there is power in the tongue, power in the tongue to give life or death, power to bless and to curse, power to harm or power to heal. Our speech helps or hurts, It means that our words reveal the condition of our hearts. It says in Luke chapter 6, 45, the good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good. And the evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil. Out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. Right? I heard a teacher say this once about James chapter 1 where it says, uh, the tongue is an unruly evil. No man can tame the tongue. And I thought, well, that almost seems unbiblical. Aren't I supposed to tame the tongue? Aren't I supposed to bring in the reins? Aren't I supposed to control it and not allow it to run wild? And the point he made is that the tongue is the barometer of the soul. And so therefore, you can't control it because it will let you know what's on the inside. That if on the inside there is good, then good will come out. If there is love on the inside, love will come out. If there is wisdom on the inside, wisdom will come out. If there is blessing on the inside, blessing will come out. If there is cursing on the inside, cursing will come out. If there is hate on the inside, hatred will come out. If there is resentment, then when you speak, resentment will come out. I thought that that was... A powerful point that the reason you can't control it is because it's intended by God to be the means through which you express what's on the inside. Amen? And so out of the good of a person's heart, there's good fruit in what they say. And out of the evil in a person's heart is the evil 
that they say. Can I just give a qualification for this scripture? Because there's a way that this scripture is used that I think is misunderstood. It misunderstands the context of Proverbs. Um, and it, it brings with it ideas that aren't in the text. Um, what this does not mean is that there is some sort of superstitious correlation between what we say and the things that come to pass. This is given different names, but really it's a, a doctrine that developed in the last 60 years uh, that some would call the power of confession or name it, claim it, or terms like speaking things into existence. Uh, these ideas are a mystical interpretation of mainly two passages of Scripture. Uh, Proverbs 18.21, which is the one we're reading, and then Matthew 16 and 19 and chapter 18 and 18, where Jesus says uh, that you can bind, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, whatever you loose on earth, earth will be loosed in heaven. And in the context of Proverbs 18 that we're looking at, it has to do with the quality and content, the character of your speech, and how that affects people's heart the people that you're communicating with. In Matthew 18, there is a sense of authority in that passage. And that's where it's like, well, that may be true to a certain degree, right? So that's, that's where that idea is taken too far. The idea is there uh, that Peter is told uh, that the, he has this authority as the head of the church and that the, the apostles have it and that Christians have this authority. And the Matthew chapter 16 passage, it has to do with opening because he says, I've give you the keys to the kingdom. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. What do you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. And then it's in the context of the gospel and preaching the gospel, right? And so by preaching the gospel, you open the gates of the kingdom for people to enter in. In Matthew 18, it has to do with church discipline and authority, and it specifically has to deal also with the activity of the devil and spiritual warfare. In the sense that if, if someone is sinning in the church and they won't repent, you can have authority over that where you can say they can be cut off uh, from the church, right? Not that you can make people saved or not saved, right? That's between a person and God. But there's a connection with the church and an intimacy that God gives his people authority over, right? When Paul says uh, in 1 Corinthians, there's someone in the church that's sinning, and he says, I've handed this person over to the devil, right? Well, what in the world does that mean? That's pretty awful, right? It says, for the destruction of the body, that their soul might be saved, that they would repent. In other words, there's a corporate relationship with the body of Christ that when we're living together in faith and obedience and repentance, that there's a corporate protection and love that we have as part of God's people and that when someone brings those behaviors into the church and they refuse to repent and acknowledge the authority of the church to address those sins, he says, after you give them space to repent, you warn them, you're patient with them, you love them, you serve them. If they don't repent, you can say that covering is gone, that spiritual protection is gone, not because we don't love you, but because we do love you right? It's the same as a parent that has uh, gotten phone calls from the police and they've come and bailed their child out of jail once and twice and three times and four times. And they go, we're at a point where I'm not throwing you away, but I'm choosing to allow the consequences of your actions to bear their full weight on you so that you'll learn not to do that anymore. 
right? And so he's saying there is an authority that is there. As well, this word binding and loosing uh, was used in uh, that day and culture to deal with the military authority to deal with uh, warfare and people that were coming against uh, the kingdom of the people who were in charge of that. And so inherent within it is a spiritual authority that we can pray and believe God that as we are discerning the will of God, the truth of Scripture, and what's going on, that we have an authority from God. Amen? And so when you pray, there might be a witness in your spirit to say, in the name of Jesus, I pray protection over my children. Lord, in the name of Jesus, I bind this devil that's trying to tempt my son or hurt my daughter or or destroy things. Or uh, I remember it was probably two years ago, the Lord gave me uh, a discernment into someone's life that the reason that they were facing certain things was that it was an attack of the devil on their marriage, on their health, and on some relationships. And we prayed and believed for God to bind those authorities where they could not uh, hurt God's people anymore, right? And so in that sense, yes, the things that we say matter, and we can uh, pray and believe God for things. Um, but the idea that if you're sick, you can't say I'm sick because you're confessing that, right? And so I've seen people, their nose is running, their face is red, they can't breathe. Are you sick? No, I'm not sick. I'm not claiming that, right? It's like, Come on, you're, you're being superstitious, right? You're like, I'm not claiming that, right? Uh, and all day long, you can claim and claim and claim, I'm going to have a million dollars, I'm going to have a million dollars, I'm going to have a million dollars and sit there and not invest or do work or anything, and you're never going to have a million dollars, right? So I, I'll never forget one of the biggest names of uh, evangelist, the uh, evangelist that teaches this, uh, teaching how we, by the words that we speak, we have authority even over the weather, right? That we can speak and stop bad weather and, you know, all of these things. And then <laughs> they talked about a trip they were supposed to take that then they weren't able to take because they were going to fly their own plane, but the weather got bad and so they couldn't fly. I'm like, well, why didn't you just like, you know, like, hey, cloud, get out of the sky. You know, where, where was that, right? This same person said, that if you are not healed, it's because you have either not confessed your healing or you've confessed it, but you don't have enough faith. And then they had to cancel four or five services that they were going to do at some uh, camp meeting somewhere uh, because they had injured their back and they had to have a surgery. And it was like, well, where? and they were talking about how much pain they had been in for months and how awful. And I'm like, well, are you, did you just not have enough faith, right? Like, did you, you know, so it's just silliness, right? It's superstition. It's a misunderstanding of the passage. Um, now, there are people who teach it, and they view it more from the Matthew 18 text, and though I think they misunderstand it, it's not that harmful, right? If It can be harmful, but, you know, hey, we all have some misunderstandings and imperfections in our theology, the people who do it because they know the full backing of this theology that you are little gods, therefore, as God spoke and created things, you can speak and create things, that is a heresy. That is a blasphemous lie, right? We are not little gods uh, in the sense that we are divine and we have this ability to speak and create with our words. That is, that's just silliness, um, So the idea of the text is that the things that we say can hurt or help, bless and curse. 
This is why we must not only guard our mouths against the potentially harmful words that we speak, but we must, we must also guard our ears against the harmful words that we hear. Can I tell you the words of this generation that we need to be aware of? If we could sum it all up is spin. That's a defining word of this generation. Spin. The CNN spin. Even the Fox News spin. The Democrat spin. The Republican spin, right? The Biden spin. The Trump spin. All of them have an agenda. They have an agenda. Can I tell you, even the spin in churches. Can I tell you, the most successful large churches that I know, one thing that they all have in common, almost all of them, is they have some unique doctrine or idea that they emphasize so much to make themselves unique and special, and they brand it. This is our message. This is our ministry. This is what we teach and preach, and this is how we're unique and different and better and greater than any other church in the world. And so every text that they preach comes through the lens of that message, right? So uh, one of these guys said, I see money in every page of the Bible, right? And every sermon that they preach somehow relates to money. But it's not just those, it's Calvinism, right? That's the in thing now. Calvinism is this very popular in thing, and you can use language, even biblical language. They've robbed us of biblical language because we're scared of sounding like a Calvinist. Sovereignty, key word. Oh, sovereignty. That's so cool. You just hear it, and you're thinking skinny jeans and a tattoo and coffee cup next to the pulpit, and you're like, sovereign. God is sovereign, right? And But they're just on a bandwagon. It's really cool. It's the trendy thing uh, to do right now. And so there's all this spin, this this, we've got to put it in this light and put it in that light. And you know what breaks my heart is, I, I know I'm not an, a Calvinist, but I also can't say I'm an Armenian because you look at the Armenians and you're like, well, you got a lot of text right, but then you're so stuck to this theological perspective, you carry it into every other passage, right? So, so the Calvinists have their text that I'm like, there's a lot of what they're saying that really matches this text. And then they apply it everywhere and you're like, you won't let this scripture say what it's saying because it contradicts what you believe. And then you go to the Armenian guy and he, you go to his verses and you're like, man, these five or six, you nailed it. You got it. You on. But then you go to these other ones, you're like, it can't mean that, right? So the, the Calvinist that I read after, Hebrews chapter 4, it, it's the text that the most Calvinists, if they're honest, will say, I don't know what to do with this scripture, or chapter, excuse me, chapter 6, Hebrews chapter 6, uh, those that have tasted the heavenly gift, partakers of the Holy Ghost, they've once been enlightened and they're turned again, and they look at that and they go, I just don't know how to understand how this person is not genuinely born again and saved and elect, but they're also fallen away. It looks like that. And you know what they said? One of them said, well, because it couldn't possibly mean that, it must have only been possible for Jews and only Jews in the first century. And, it, and it's not something that can ever happen again. Holy cow, man. That's what, that's what you're going to do to this text, right? And so I have, uh, I've had Calvinists, right, where they got upset with me because I got to a certain text and I said, 
This could be understood as this person once being saved, truly born again, and walking away from the faith. Well, because that's not possible, how could you say that? Looks like it. You said it looks like it. I don't know what you want me to do, right? So it's spin, spin. Another thing, outrage. Is that a good defining word for this generation? Outrage? Isn't that a virtue now? It's outrage. You said Merry Christmas instead of Happy Holidays, and my soul was vexed. I was so burdened by your Christianese that you forced on me. Oh, no. Right? Thank you, sir. I am not a sir. When I get home, I'm going to shave my five o'clock shadow, and then I'm going to call some lawyer and sue you because you called me sir. Sorry. I I was, excuse me. I'm sorry. I didn't, I didn't mean to. Right? And then, oh, you put a bumper sticker who you voted for. Do you hate people if you voted for that person? I can't even stand it right now. I'm going to die. Outrage. It's a virtue, right? It's the virtue of our day is that we are enraged. How could you possibly believe this, think this, do this, say this? What happened to live and let live, right? What what happened to just, man, I really think that you're wrong and ignorant and here are the 20 reasons why, but you know what? Do what you want to do. Believe what you want to believe. It's, it's not We can't do that anymore. I can't allow you to have an opinion that I don't agree with. Coercion. Coercion is another defining word of our day. And the reason that it's important is because it will soon find itself forcing things upon you that you have to choose either being faithful to Jesus and the Word of God or faithful to follow along with this generation wherever it leads, even if it leads off a cliff. You can lose your job. You can lose your livelihood. We're going to coerce you. We're going to force you. We're going to break you. We're going to run you out of the workplace. We're going to run you out of society. You might be blocked on Facebook. You might be banned on Twitter. You might lose your job, right? That's all right. They'll call back later. Coercion. What about godlessness? Godlessness. One of the reasons that this is important is because there is so much in our culture now, we are so post-Christian in our generation that we don't have to necessarily attack Christianity, the Bible, or Jesus. But the world and its worldview is so godless that just by presenting what it believes, thinks, and uh, the way that it behaves, it influences the way that you think without realizing it. Right? This is worldview shaping Worldview shaping. And so you watch a movie and it has characters in it who have lifestyle choices that contradict what was considered natural, righteous, healthy, moral just 10 years ago, 20 years ago. And now it's something different and they don't have to cram it down your throat. We'll just present it as normal. We'll just present it as healthy. And then let that shape the way that you view things, that this is okay, this is normal, this is healthy. I was listening yesterday to a sociologist and a lawyer who was speaking about the craze and the pandemic of girls uh, believing that they are, well, how to say this with children in the room, not a girl, even though they are biologically, right? And how this is actually a craze where not only are they believing this, 
but they are believing it in groups. One girl becomes convinced, then two and three and four. And so you have four girls in a friend group all deciding this at once and then rushing to their doctors and rushing to their parents to get hormone blockers and transition therapy. And they don't even, in some states, have to have parental consent. Right? So they can go to Planned Parenthood. They can go to certain clinics. Just like five or ten years ago, there were only ten in the whole nation. Now there's 200 plus in the nation. And they can go to this clinic without parental consent and get these drugs that will begin to give them testosterone and these male hormones that will cause them at maybe 15 years old to begin developing facial hair and to develop physically as a male. And this woman, I don't even think was a Christian. She was probably a secularist or an atheist or something. And all she was saying was not that this is not uh, a healthy lifestyle. She was just saying that the fact that they're doing this in large swath, great movements of people without parental consent is unhealthy and we have no idea what the outcome will be. I can tell you what the outcome will be. Incredible destruction and irreversible damage, right? And how are these girls getting this influence? It's on their TikToks. It's on their Instagrams. It's the things that they're watching and the words that they're hearing that are shaping them. What are the words that they're hearing? Approval, celebration, you're bold, you're different, you're wonderful because you're not like the norm. You're not cis. You're not just this you know, binary one or two or zero or one. You're this different thing. And so because that's praise, because that's shared as a virtue, they're becoming this. Can I say... Another word that defines this generation is lost. Utterly lost. Without direction. They have no North Star. They have no guiding point. They have nothing to lead them. They've, oh, aren't they free? They've cast off this restraint, this terrible, mean book that dictates how we're supposed to live, and we've thrown the thing to the wind. Now we're free, but we're lost. So we don't know who we are. We don't know where we are. We don't know where we come from. And we don't know where we're going. But at least we don't have this awful thing to hold us in restraint. And it's lost. And so the voices that we hear in our day and age are many deadly voices creating much death and not enough life voices creating life. I'll read a, one more scripture to you. I have two more after that, but we'll start talking. I, don't, I, would, I would like to take a few minutes to be able to let everyone speak. Colossians 4, 5 through 6 says, Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time or redeeming the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer Each person. Let your speech be seasoned. Make sure that grace is just sprinkled in there, right? And I'm talking the way Cajun season thing, right? Heavy, see, right? Lots of flavor in everything. Have you ever gone up north and said, this is why people are willing to live in this kind of heat and humidity, right? Because Lord have mercy, they don't know what seasoning is up there. Praise God for Louisiana seasoning. And we don't want our 
uh, our speech to be northern seasoned with grace. We want Cajun. Uh, we want Louisiana seasoned, right? Lots of heavy red pepper and salt and all of that seasoning, right? Let your words be seasoned. Always gracious seasoned with salt that you may know how to answer each person. Is this an incredible instruction to us? It says this. If your words are seasoned with grace, if it always leans towards grace, if it's filled with grace, you will always know how to answer each person. Isn't that amazing? That's the metric by which I try to deal with my children. Because I can tell you, I got five of them. They're all spread apart in different ages. And sometimes I just don't know what to say. And what convicts my heart is, if, if my words are seasoned with grace, then it's appropriate. And my, when my words have no grace in them, they are not healthy words. They are not good words. The scriptures are replete with the idea that the things we say are incredibly important. When God rejoiced at the beauty and value of each aspect of creation, he said, it is good. The cause for the entire fallen human condition is hung upon the fact that the serpent lied to Eve. When Israel was in bondage to Egypt and desperately needed deliverance, they cried out for help. And God responded by sending Moses with a message for Pharaoh, let my people go. And Simon Peter said to Jesus, you have the words of eternal life. Our words are important. We must ask the Lord to help us to not sin with our words. Psalm 141 and verse 3 says this, Set a guard, O Lord, over my mouth. Keep watch over the door of my lips. Right? So when words are tempted to come out that are sinful words, put a guard there with a spear or with a sword that will threaten those words and be like, get back inside. Right? Set a guard there. Don't let those words out. Which means we may do a lot of repenting under our breath, right? Because it's in there. And if it's in there, it's sin, right? Whether you say it or not, it's a sin. But it'd be better to have that sin in your heart and repent of it there than actually say it and not be able to take it back. Amen? And so tonight, I'll just open it up to you. What are some ways that you see in our culture, in our society, that our words are either life or death? Maybe... Before we deal with the culture, what are ways that you see in your own life that the Lord has either helped you to speak words of life or convicted you for not speaking words of life, for speaking words of death? Amen.